Thank you. I want to thank the presenters for um, giving those great talks. And I think this is a really exciting time for therapeutics for this devastating disease that really has no FDA-approved options. And it's really telling that we have so many different types of therapies and different mechanisms, and all of this will continue to drive innovation for retina. So I'm joined here by this panel of experts, and I can't go through all their achievements because it would take all of our time. But what I can say is everyone here is multi-talented. We have clinicians, researchers, industry leaders, and we have uh, creative thinkers and entrepreneurs up here with me. So thank you for coming. And I'm going to start by asking the questions that so many people, I'm sure, want to know. We'll start with our two clinicians, Dr. Hassan and Dr. Boyer. But this question's for you, Dr. Boyer. Um, what do you think about um, incorporating some of these therapies for geographic atrophy into our clinical practice? Right now, I know you're so busy. I know how many up in the almost 100 patients you can see during a day, and you are busy injecting patients. And two of our phase three agents require potentially monthly or every other month treatment. How are you going to fit that into your day? Well, I think uh, retinal surgeons in general have been able to adapt to whatever is thrown our way. We had the same question asked to us when we uh, had originally neovascular AMD, and then we added diabetes, and then we added vein occlusions, and we were able to adapt. I think in, in this case, you know, we're going to have to streamline what we do. Um, basically, we do not need to get uh, photographs uh, at various time points. Um, this is fairly straightforward. I probably won't dilate patients, but may get an OCT only because of the possibility of developing wet AMD or exudative uh, changes with these patients. But uh, we want to make it as quick as possible for these patients because these are working people. Um, some of them, you know, have to go back to work. Um, also, a lot of the patients that we see uh, that we really want to treat are asymptomatic. They come in with excellent visual acuity. And um, those are the ones that may be able to uh, benefit the most from both the Apellus and Iveric data that was showing the extrafobial lesions are really the ones you want to treat. The ones that want to be treated are the subfobial who feel they're losing vision on a, a daily or monthly basis. How much they improve, I don't know. Well, you brought up a good point, actually, I just want to continue on with, about imaging. So do you think that in these patients that you'll be using autofluorescence to follow them or OCT? How will you know if it's working? Um, I don't think that we'll be able to tell uh, using autofluorescence. I don't think that's necessary. You may want to do it at baseline. You may want to do it yearly just to show the patients, you know, what, what you're accomplishing. But I think OCT gives you uh, the ability to, number one, be able to measure very accurately what's going on. It also, is, to me, is a better way of knowing if it's subfovial lesions. Um, a, lot of, a lot of this will depend on the labeling the FDA gives these two companies. If they give them uh, the ability to treat all G GA patients, um, you know, that's one thing. But if they give it extra fovea alone, um, that's another, you know, model. Um, but I think that I, I, originally I thought, well, we don't need OCT, but with the uh, exudation that can occur with this, I think you'll have to do OCTs periodically, if not every time, to pick up that early exudation. So you brought up an important point that 
exudation has been described in some of the phase three studies that have been evaluated, and it seems to be related to the frequency of dose. Dr. Hassan, two questions. How, how do you think that clinicians, do you think this will scare clinicians from using some of these agents because they don't want to have to deal with the exudation? And how are you going to keep patients in the game when you tell them about this potential complication? Well, those are excellent questions and really what's on really everybody's mind as far as how we're going to deal with it. I think that to be truthful, and I'm sorry to my friends that, that work in the space, but they will, this will scare clinicians. It'll scare a lot of them. You have your classic curve of early adopters and then those that wait to see what happens and then those that may not adopt in the long run. And I do think that there will be a pause while some watch what happens to other people as they treat the, their patients. I think as Dave alluded to, the, the indications that we get to treat will be very important. If we're able to treat folks that have active wet CNV, we will get experience using these drugs for controlling the GA in concert with anti-VEGF therapy that maybe the efficacy that we've all seen with anti-VEGF agents over the last 15 years will comfort us enough to, to allow us to feel that we can take on that risk that, you know what, if there is a little bit of new exudation that develops, we've got the treatments for it and they're working. So I think, you know, we learn as we do and I think that um, that'll, that'll be the biggest thing with, is time. And then I think the, the further development of our imaging techniques, OCT, um, whether, you know, we could be doing uh, other artificial intelligence algorithms, our software will, will hopefully improve so that we can understand these sorts of changes better than in, in really the best of worlds, comfort us so that we don't worry as much about that amount of exudation. So what do you think the ideal scenario is going to be when a patient comes in that you're treating for GA and they get exudation, you're going to say, I'm going to give you two injections today, I'm going to give you one injection today, another injection in two weeks. How do you think that is sustainable? By our current working model, no, it really isn't. But as David alluded to, we are very adaptable. And I think we've figured out basically how to deal with every challenge put before us clinically, surgically, and otherwise. And I think we will. I think we will change our protocols. We will use um, home monitoring more. We will use uh, wide field imaging more. We will do undilated exams. We may have injection clinics. Um, God forbid if it got too overwhelming, we'd even have ancillary personnel starting to do uh, some of the therapeutic work. We will overcome that, and I think that the concept of injection burden uh, is far less important than the efficacy to our patients, and we'll figure it out. That I have no doubt. It's just a matter of does it work well enough without complications. If we think we're helping our patients, we'll be able to do it. Dr. Hopkins, you and I were talking about this before. Do you have any theories as to why patients with geographic atrophy get this exudation or choroidal neovascularization? I don't think we know yet, Carolyn, is, is the short answer to a tough question, right? I mean, we know we have a multifactorial disease at play. We've gotten pretty good at dealing with the anti-VEGF um, therapies to control the coronary vascularization. Is this, you know, some of the therapies for GA driving more of that in some way? Is it an inflammatory mechanism? I, I don't think we know. I think it is, um, it will be important, I think, in how we follow patients, image them, treat them, manage both aspects of the disease going forward. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see as, as, you know, if these drugs come to market, we have more real-world experience with them, how we see um, the patients faring and, and the physicians managing it. Great. Um, I want to change 
themes a little bit, so I can ask uh, Dr. Henry a question here, because you've been involved in a lot of planning of phase three clinical trials for geographic atrophy. And one thing that uh, many, many people in companies and industry want to know is about clinical endpoints for geographic atrophy. It's not always so clear. We don't have the visual improvement endpoint that we used in neovascular AMD. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about development of clinical endpoints and also a little bit about foveal involvement and non-foveal involvement. Do you think that is an important endpoint? And we can put it out to the panel too, how much is that gonna play a role in your treatment of patients? But tell us a little bit about the endpoints first. Sure, happy to. It's been really interesting to see the evolution of geographic atrophy studies. And you know, we've learned from our past failures as well as from our recent successes. And I think it's a really exciting time. I think the imaging endpoints still remain the backstop. Um, certainly for FDA registration enabling studies, we're still getting a handle on the best functional endpoint because, you know, there is still a strong desire to have functional support that complements the imaging endpoints. And I think we'll learn more as we see the readouts of the coming studies in the fall. Um, but, but that, I think, remains an open question. In terms of within the imaging uh, endpoint category, one thing that I think is playing an increasing role is the importance of patient subgroups. And we've seen most recently the delineation of whether or not the foveal center point is involved. So whether or not you call it extra foveal, non-foveal, non-subfoveal, or non-center involved, essentially all of these subgroups are delineating whether or not the atrophy is involved in the center point of the, of the fovea. And that tends to be an enrichment endpoint for if the foveal center point's not involved, the lesion moves more rapidly. We've seen both in the, uh, the choice of enrolling just those patients or using that as a key subgroup, that that tends to show a more robust progression over the one or two year trials as well as uh, opportunity for a treatment effect to be seen. And so I think that is one that has had a huge focus and I would say in terms of how we think about future clinical uh, evolution of that endpoint, having a standard definition of the image modality that we used for determining center point involvement is one thing that I think would really help. Uh, perhaps all of us you know, deciding what's the best term to use would also be useful. And then I think there are other subgroups that are of interest that we still um, haven't quite fully understood whether or not if foveal involvement or not is the only subgroup that is going to delineate the best rapidly progressing population and then treatment benefit or if there may be others. We know from natural history studies that there are a number of other things that tend to show more or less rapid progression. So I'm looking forward to that and you know certainly we have our own trial program but I think that for the field at large um, trying to figure out the right patient population uh, that can be help for foreseeing treatment effects over one or two years, but also could be more generally applied to a broader population um, so that we're not, again, limiting indications or labels. Well, uh, Dr. Boyer said earlier that he would maybe not treat patients with foveal involvement. Are you going to use foveal involvement to decide your treatment or visual acuity or whether they're monocular? How are you going to decide who you want to Wait, treat? did I say that? Well, you said maybe. You said maybe not now, if the uh, fovea well, no, was it, involved that they wouldn't be treated as aggressively. Let me change that. Those so. are the patients that really want to be treated. They come to my office every day saying, when's this drug going to be available? 
Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't treat them. I said we have to see what the FDA labeling shows us. Got it. And, and I think these are patients, you know, with small lesions, they really see a difference as that lesion grows and, and they're anxious. Those are the ones that are knocking on your door every day saying, when's this drug going to be available? I'll take the shot. The ones that aren't knocking on your door are the ones that probably would benefit the most. And those are with the extrafoveal lesions. As you pointed out, you know, what the definition is, we can argue. But those that are extrafoveal, you may give them years of better vision. I think that everybody in this room would like to treat earlier. I think that, you know, we'd all like to be able to identify using OCT to see these uh, dark areas that may, you know, uh, eventually lead to GA and treat those patients. But that's a longer study, and the FDA has got to buy into the fact that that is a precursor. Um, but I think that, you know, for the benefit of our patients, as was pointed out, we really want to treat as early as possible to prevent the GA from forming, prevent the visual loss. Uh, I think that's where I'm going. I, I, you know, if it's sure. approved, I will treat all patients that are under that label that want treatment. All patients. Tarek, do you have anything that would suggest a more ideal candidate for this, you know, frequent therapy if, if it comes to I, I think, well, David makes a great point. I mean, obviously, we'd like to treat as early as possible because that's the best data we have available, says that those are the folks that we may help the most long term. But the conundrum is, those are the people that we will not be able to show them anything that, to, to identify the fact that we're helping them. So they may not be truly the ideal candidate from a practical standpoint of, of you had asked earlier, how do we convince folks to do this? How do we convince folks to stay with it? I think initiating therapy is different than continuing therapy. It'll be easy to tell people, well, we have all this data and here's the thing. And, and then we show them 12 months later, nothing from their perspective, and it's much harder to continue. I've been maybe a contrarian to some degree, but I think the people with foveal lesions are the best people to start with because they are more likely to grasp uh, to, at, at anything to maintain what they have. And the best patients of those are the ones that have active wet AMD because we all know how well anti-VEGF works to control their CNV, but why do they lose vision? They lose vision because their GA gets huge. And you, every one of us can show 10 patients a day uh, to another patient and say, look what happened to these people. We controlled their lesion, but look at their GA grow exponentially over the course of just a few years. Those people you could actually get to start treating. Then we see how we do. We see how this drug is working over time. That's how it gets started in the marketplace. So um, although the best patients are the ones that David said, I don't know if they're going to be the easiest ones to get into uh, actual treatment. Yeah. You know, I think Tarek brings up a, a great point, um, reiterating what I said, the ones that we want to treat. The only way you're going to get a buy-in is to have AI show you what you have today, what you would have had if we didn't treat you. Because it, this is not a wowie drug. I mean, none of these drugs are wowie drugs like we had when our, we first gave our anti-VEGF. The doctors said wowie and the patients said wowie. They saw an improvement. They were not going to stop treatment. Here, this is like treating, you know, glaucoma where you know you keep treating and keep treating and the patients say am i doing better you say yes you're doing much better and a lot of them drop out and don't take their medicine so you know Tarek's right you, you we need to have some form of uh, imaging modality that we can show the patients yes you're doing much better than you would have if you didn't take this drug this is keeping you from going into the fovea or this is keeping that lesion from growing naturally 
for me. <laughs> thank, you. thank you again, Derek. Um, I think building onto all these great comments, sort of the, you know, the endpoint discussion I think is critical. And then the AI piece, right? I think we need to really, as, as a field, kind of come together and say, what do we need to understand about structure function correlations here? in a natural history setting, in data, we have contrast sensitivity, we have vision, we have lesion growth, and then how can we build those AI tools to drive that forward? I mean, you, we should be at the intersection of a place right now where we could imagine visualizing that for a patient, you know, how your lesion changes, what your vision does, what your contrast might do. That becomes really important for earlier treatment. It becomes really important for regulatory and, and payer and access for patients over time. Um, and particularly as we look at potentially one-time therapies or committing someone to a long-term intravitreal, I think we've got to start building those, um, those assets for ourselves and our patients. And I think the time to start is now. Um, I know we're on the cusp of many of them, but I think sort of coming together to drive that as a field is it's kind of on all of us in this room uh, to make that uh, a reality. I'm so happy you have that mic because I have a question for you. We're just going to move on to something a little bit different now. Um, for those of you, many of you probably don't know, but Dr. Hopkins and I were residents together just about 10 years ago. And, Less uh, than that, Carolyn. <laughs> I just want to ask, because now you are a Senior Vice President and Global Head at Novartis, you've had many different roles in big companies and small companies, but I want to know what sort of factors do you consider when you are designing or acquiring new therapeutics in your current role? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'll sort of pull on experiences from multiple roles uh, through, through the decades, but I think a big one for me, and we heard it a lot from our speakers already today, is the unmet need. You know, what is the problem you're trying to solve and, and what are we trying to do for our patients? I think when you start there, that's always a, a great starting point. I've been really fortunate to work in, in industry and companies that that's their they're a sort of driving force, which has been great. And then I think the next piece is really, can you add to that unmet need transformative science, either in the form of delivery or in drug? And once you start to build that, and again, great question based on all the wonderful presentations this morning, but I think just thinking about, you know, in, in a delivery platform, for example, is it a true platform? Can you see multiple, um, you know, therapeutics that might be built into something like that? I think in the, the whole mechanism of action and, and transformative science, it's really about the coherence of the package, right? And again, when you can build, you know, a strong MOA, a good reason to believe scientifically, when you have structure and function that start to add up, particularly compelling are biomarkers. I know um, David just presented that from ONL, and Gyroscope has some lovely biomarker work as well on what you actually can have evidence in the vitreous or aqueous of what is happening, no better target engagement and, you know, again, making that very coherent package is really important. Um, and then I think, you know, nowadays we have to think even more about how will that differentiate, what are the endpoints going to be, will we get access, can we have the capacity in clinic to deliver it? Effectively, will we get it to patients around the globe? What is that pathway going to look like? And, and the payer piece, very important, right? So there may be payer endpoints that differ from the regulatory ones and will be just as important if we're thinking about actually delivering to patients. So it's a long answer, but step by step. And I think early engagement, I mean, meetings like these, hearing how people are putting their plans together, thinking through it is exceptionally helpful for the field. Well, thank you so much, Joe. That's a great answer. I just want to, while we wrap it up here, I just want to go through the panel one by one. We heard about some of the complement therapeutics, and we heard about a surgical therapeutic for geographic atrophy. But going through, we'll start off with Jill, because you have the mic that works. What are some other um, therapeutics for geographic atrophy or delivery or imaging that you're looking forward to coming up in the future? 
Yeah, as I said, I would love to see us crack the code on, on the AI progression conversation piece, because I think, again, we're getting a whole set of tools in the toolbox, hopefully, for this, you know, very hard to treat geographic atrophy. If we have something that helps patients and us have a really robust conversation about what will be best for them, that would make me happy. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I think, you know, we are indeed trying to crack the code from all sides. So it's great to see that we have companies that are getting close to having something in our hands to use in the clinic uh, and one aspect of the complement cascade and, and obviously it's in fact on inflammation. But I also like seeing that we're working at different ends of this spectrum. I think that ultimately, since a lot of people don't seem to respond to any modification of the complement system for GA, for example, that we got to get a little bit further downstream or further upstream. And I think whether it looks to me like the, the membrane attack complex and the inflammasome sort of does the work at the, end of the, at the end of the train. So maybe that's what we have to attend to. And I think some of the new immunotherapies that are coming out uh, we've seen it in cancer. We've seen some remarkable things in immune modulation in cancer. And I think that ultimately getting th there with geographic atrophy may give us that, that last bit that explains why we, only, we get the results that we get from the current methods of inhibiting complement. We've got to get down to where the, the business is actually happening, the dirty business of, of destroying the cells. And I think that's the membrane attack complex and the inflammasome. Dr. No, I totally agree with Tarek. I, I think CD59, Hemera's company, to, to limit that, it's gene therapy, so it's, it's that you don't require the monthly injections. But I, I also agree that I think we have to find what the stimulus or reduce the stimulus that causes the activation of the complex, and whether it be macrophages or inflammasomes or whatever, I think we have to go further up and, and, and try to identify, is it amyloid that starts it? You know, there are all these different ways that we can look at this, but if we stop the complement cascade from starting the alternative pathway, then hopefully we get better results. Well, as you know, I'm a fan of the complement inhibitor inhibitors, but outside of complement inhibition, when you look at these patients genetically, the other thing that you see more than anything else is HTRA1 and ARMS2. You know, that is so, those risk haplotypes are so associated with AMD generally and GA specifically. And so, you know, we, we don't know a lot about what it's doing, whether or not inhibiting it or upregulating it is important, but I think that's another piece of the puzzle that I'm really looking forward to uh, having a greater understanding of. Well, thank you, everyone. I want to thank our panel for being so involved in this research and the companies that drive all of our innovation in geographic atrophy. And I hope that we have a, a treatment on the horizon and a way to treat this unmet need. Thank you so much.